0: Welcome to the Base Brotherhood. My name is Alex, aka Lead Pacer. I'm joined by Lasad Corday, our production guru, and our honored guest is Mike Shelby, also known as Gray Zone Warlord. This is episode number seven. Mike, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, we've been—I've um, been following you for a while and increasingly liking your content. You know, you've—I I think you know—you've really hit a trigger with a lot of people in this space and, and the things that you're talking about. And you have a background that's uh, you know very familiar with things that appeal to this base corner of Twitter. And I wanted to start off by just learning a little bit more about you, your upbringing, uh, your background, if you just want to go ahead and fire when ready.
1: Sure. Thanks. Well, I grew up in the deep South, a uh, conservative Christian household. That's where I got all my baseness from. Grew up in the church. <laughs> uh, graduated high school, went to college, and uh, joined a fraternity. And I, I just got to be honest, I really was not feeling college. I, uh, I watched the invasion of Iraq from my fraternity house room on the TV. And I thought, wow, like that's that was cool. And I thought, man, you know, here I am, I was you know, 18 or 19 or whatever at the time. And I said, man, I, I don't want to spend. These next few years, just sitting in some classroom, listening to a professor yap on about whatever he's yapping about. And uh, so I decided to enlist. So I dropped out of college in 2003, enlisted in 2004, and didn't really do anything spectacular uh, other than uh, spend part of every year from 2006 to 2011 deployed to either Iraq or Afghanistan as an intel guy. And uh, in 2012, I really didn't like where the country was headed. And I, I uh, quit my job as an intelligence analyst. And a few years later, I started Forward Observer, where we started tracking these trends on our own and really doing the, the exact same work, but for a different crowd, different customer. Instead of instead of doing this thing for the DOD or for the government, we were doing it for people who are, very, who are like me, very concerned about the future. And...
0: There's a lot of concerned citizens out there now. Real quick, I want to kind of you know, I'm I'm doing some math here, so I think we might be close to the same age. You dro- you dropped out in 2003. Are you like late 30s? Like I'm I'm 38, so I'm just I'm just curious as yeah, to
1: I'll be 38 this year too.
0: Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, um, I re- I remember that time as well. I mean, it was uh, you know going into the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. It was probably more exciting than sitting in a classroom. So I can totally identify with you there, but I'd like to go back a little bit and talk about, you know, your, you know, so you, you're a veteran, you've been in Afghanistan and Iraq, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I spent two years in Afghanistan and one year in Iraq. What were those experiences like? Well, uh, pretty interesting. Actually, uh, my first tour, I, I worked at an interrogation facility and got to see, you know, a side of the conflict that very few others had. And then, uh, my second tour, I worked at, uh, C2 special projects. So, you know, we were doing, uh, stuff at the core level. So, uh, just highly classified stuff and, uh, getting the, getting to see the core and echelons above core level, uh, tracking extremist groups and all sorts of different developments and, uh, in Iraq. And then, uh, my last tourist was 18 months in uh, uh, Afghanistan, and uh, I was just a, a contractor then, and we uh, did biometrics and helped, uh, hunt, hunted down bomb builders, essentially.
0: Wow. Wow. I mean, there's, <laughs> I'd love to hear more about that, but um, I'd like to know a little bit about your progression. So in 2003, you know, from 2012, you became incredibly experienced in in, in what's really going on on the ground in, in multiple, you know, in multiple countries and, in in different ways and you became dissatisfied with the direction of the country. So what happened over those, uh, you know, basic, roughly a decade, what happened over that time?
1: Well, my first tour, I was an E-4 specialist and, uh, we were noting how many foreign fighters were coming over the border from Pakistan into Afghanistan. I looked at the amount of US and coalition forces and I said uh, they're on the border I said there's no way we're gonna ever seal this border up and that's when it, that's the first like uh, light bulb that came on it's like whoa we are not doing what we need to do to win in this place and then of course I you know I was still gung-ho I mean really that's the you know thing uh, uh, about doing what we're doing and and then I got over to Iraq I left Afghanistan in 07, went to Iraq in 08. And it was kind of just more the same. Like the financial crisis happened. And uh, I slowly just started to doubt. I'm like, I just do not see the reasoning in all the things that we're doing. And I looked at the strategic errors that were being, I mean, working at core level. So we had, you know, high level access to a lot of things and just looking at the things that were, were going on or, or the things that weren't going on that needed to go on. And I, I was an E-5 as Sergeant by that time. And uh, I just started to, I really started to doubt uh, the long-term viability of the United States as a, as an empire. Uh, and, uh, and I came away from Iraq, like uh, with, with a d- much different perspective
0: yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's trial by fire, and you're seeing all this unfold, and you're thinking, what's really um, are we really competent? Do we really want to win? What would it have taken to really seal those borders and win? I mean, how much more people? How much more of an effort would it have required to actually get the job done? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'm not an ops guy, but you know, I would say uh, I, I don't know. I, a division is probably not uh, not too far off. I mean, we at least needed another couple of brigades over there at a minimum, which is uh, a lot more than we're, you know, fighting kind of a two, not really two front conflict, but fighting in, in two countries. Uh, mm-hmm. It just, we didn't, the dwell time was already too low and guys were, you know, coming over for a year and trying to get a, a year back, uh, a, a year back stateside and then got ripped out again. And uh, so I just, we I just don't think we, we could have done it.
0: Yeah, there's just a fatigue that sets in, you know, when people have to keep going back. Um, so, you know, looking back now, what do you think happened? And it, like, wh- what were our real intentions of going over there? And then it, it's, it's, I guess it's kind of hard when you have one administration that takes you into something like that. And then it gets kind of handed off to the next guy who's completely different. And you're trying to hold these places together. It seems highly improbable that you're going to have the same level of conviction from, say you know, the, uh, you know, the W Bush administration to the Obama administration and then to Trump. I mean, it's just, it's hard to hand these things off. So, um, and in, in 2012, it sounds like you really had, you know, sort of an epiphany or, you know, an accumulation of, of seeing all and living, you know, li- seeing all these things happen. And, and what were your conclusions in terms of what the United States was doing?
1: Well, for one, making a whole bunch of money for defense contractors, and I was one. I got paid uh, multiples of what I made as an E five, but as a contractor. And when I counted the number of contractors, the number of support personnel, number of KBR people who were getting paid to scoop out potatoes and you know whatever in the chow line, uh, and then you know we're spending I don't know whatever how much how much however much a HIMARS missile costs and however much these these bombs cost. You know, there's that funny meme that says. You know, javelin costs 80, I don't know if this is true, but a javelin costs $80,000 and it's fired by a guy who doesn't make that in a year. And, uh, and that's just for <laughs> right. one javelin missile. So, th- th- I mean, this, right. this whole thing really was just, uh, uh, I, I look at it and a lot of the things that we did over there, a lot of the money, I mean, especially the money that can't be accounted for now, it was just a massive uh, gift of taxpayer money to the defense industry. And it's no reason why we stayed over there that long and uh, because all these people were just making tons of money. It's and, uh, just about Russia and China. Now, you know, I mean, all these, the same defense contractors are, are rubbing their greedy little paws together, thinking about how many new missiles and how many new tanks and how many new uh, airborne ISR platforms that they're going to get to make and sell to the U S government.
0: Yeah. And, and you're making me think a little bit, you know, several months back, whenever, um, you know, Afghanistan, you know, was, it was the worst, uh, I don't know, even to say retreat or withdrawal of all time. But I remember right around that time, I had to cut a, you know, decent size check to the government and pay, you know, pay income taxes. And I see these guys that are like, you know, 60 IQ morons with pallets of U.S. dollars with, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that they, you know, that these, Af- these Afghans, you know, or Taliban guys, it was left behind for them, or they were paid off, or whatever. And I'm thinking, how much of an idiot do I feel like right now? You know, beyond just the fact that, you know, these scenes that you're seeing on television, you know, and the clips that you're seeing on Twitter were horrifying. You know, disheartening. You know, it's it's the money. It, it, it's the money that we've squandered, and um, it, it's and it goes deep. And it, you know, it's 20 years of of um, you know squandering. <laughs> you know, our taxpayer dollars. And I don't see how we um, get, past, get past that very easily.
1: No, luckily for, I, I, the American empire is ending, in my opinion. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I am somewhat hopeful and to a degree delighted because the government's doing all these things to delegitimize themselves. And this is not just a left-right thing. They're delegitimizing themselves on, for for a lot of people on both sides, and so mm-hmm. the more the more people are are frustrated and upset and angry. The more opportunity we have to change things, and unfortunately, I don't think the change is going to be peaceful, and it's not going to be quick, and it's not going to be pretty.
0: Well, that's that's bold, and and I know and I know a number of people that have come to that conclusion, and it's it's hard for a lot of people to hear this. I think particularly for, you know, boomers and older generations to hear someone like yourself say that and someone that's that's actually been on the ground, it, it's a holy shit type of moment. I mean, what what does that mean? What's going to happen? And it really shatters their frame as to what America has been and where it's going. And they don't really want to deal with it, I've noticed, with the, with, you know, some of the older generations. Like, this just can't be true. We can vote our way out of it. You know, there's things we can do. But. I've come to a very similar conclusion that you have and so you know let's talk a little bit about what that looks like in terms of it's there's you know the peaceful solutions voting your way out of it it doesn't look very likely it's going to be something very very different so you know one of the things you talk about is low intensity conflict low intensity conflict what does that look like and how does it apply to the the context of which we're headed
1: So, uh, you know, I would describe the past roughly 10 years and maybe you can go back to nine 11, you know, it's like the first time, you know, I I grew up and idolized my dad and I still do, but I remember the first time he was put in the hospital for an extended period of time. And it's like, Whoa, this guy's like not invincible. Like he's going to die one day. That's kind of how I feel about the United States of America right now. And we are in a period, the, the real problem for us is that a, we're at the late stage cycle of an empire already because Sir John Glubb wrote this fantastic essay about it. it's called the fate of empires. They are cyclical. And yes. So the United States really has, has three strategic problems going on right now and they're all interrelated. But the first is that we're on the backside of empire. Number two, we are at a place where as people become, as government can do less and less to solve problems. One of the problems is that America is so complex and so large that that complexity has increased exponentially. Governing, excuse me, governing this country, the ability to govern has not increased exponentially. And so we really do have a, a country that's kind of outgrown the ability to govern it. And a lot of that's driving low intensity conflict. And then we have the decline of, of the United States in relation to comparative to the rise of other countries, specifically China. And they all know this. And so I look at, you know, low-intensity conflict is is war. It is conflict below the threshold of conventional war. So we're not talking about tanks and bombers being used against each other. I don't think this is going to be like 1861 again. Uh, And low-intensity conflict is above routine peaceful competition. So we're talking about the Irish Troubles or uh, guerrilla campaigns, terror campaigns, popular revolutions like the one we saw back in 2020. And that is just getting started. I mean, I think a case could be made that maybe this started in 2008 with the financial crisis. It definitely started by 2016 when Trump supporters were getting punched in the face, face and, and egg. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll be honest, man, I was like, you know, I was like pretty conservative in 2016. I didn't really care that much for Trump. But you know what happened is Sarah Palin syndrome. I did not care for Sarah Palin. Until the media started attacking her left and right, and I really felt like defending her. Same thing with Trump. I watched these these Trump people get get assaulted and thrown eggs and milkshaked and thrown cinder blocks and fireworks and stuff at Adam them for you know having these rallies. And and I was like, okay, I'm on the Trump train after this. Like, let's make those people pay. So at any rate, uh, this stuff's just started. Like we're, uh, this decade's going to get much worse, I believe.
0: Yeah, I, I I think you're right. And, you know, I look back at, you know, when did America really change for me? 2001, September eleventh, two 2001 is whenever, you know, just the, kind of the spirit of the country was forever changed. And then of course we, you know, we jumped into these wars, but 2008 was really, you know, sort of the end of the financial system. And we've been, um, you know, living on borrowed time ever since, but we know the day is coming that, you know, this whole thing will go kaput and we're getting closer and closer to it. So, um, you know, you look at the book, The Fourth Turning by Neil Howe, and there's, I forget who his co-author was, but I've, you know, kind of thumbed through that and, and listened to him in interviews and talking about how, you know, there is this seismic shift going on, you know, right now in the Western world and particularly in America, where um, it's going to be a generation of upheaval and conflict, and there's no guarantee that we're going to come out of it the other side as, as a whole, and, and it'd be anything like what we were before. And so, you know, you you look at 2008 as maybe the beginning of that. We could go through, and the question is, how long is this period going to last? Because I agree with you. It is getting more intense. Like, people think what's gone on over the last couple of years with COVID and with the BLM riots, you know, it, that that's, you know, pretty stressful. Oh, gosh, this is so, uh, guys, this is nothing compared to what's going to happen. And that's why it's so important that, you know, people like yourselves, um, you know, get on various platforms and keep spreading this message because it is going to, and people need to prepare for it. So I, I would ask you, you know, if we're just getting ramped up, is this going to go on? Like, how long are we looking at? Are we looking at you know, 2030? Are we looking at like, you know, 2035? Is this like 10, 15 plus years? Um, you know, I, I know that's difficult. That's a difficult question, but how do you see it playing out?
1: Low-intensity conflicts are are typically protracted because they are, since they they exist below the threshold of conventional war, there really is no annihilation. It's really attrition. And uh, for, you know, like let's take an insurgency because that's a low-intensity conflict. Uh, An insurgency is protracted by design. Because what the insurgents are trying to do is wear down the will of the government to resist and wear down the people, the will of the people to resist, and eventually you have government saying, "Okay, that's enough. We, you've run our, in- our economy into the ground. You've uh, caused all you know all these problems." And okay, let's let's get to the table and let's talk about a peace deal. Same thing that the Taliban did. Same thing the FARC did in Colombia. Same thing the Iraqis did. You know, specifically the uh, the Sunnis um, did in in Iraq. I mean, there's just lots of, of examples of uh, insurgents having protracted – and Mal talks about this. Mal is very clear about, hey, you, this has to be a protracted war because you have to exhaust the enemy before he will either give in or give you a seat at the table. And most of these events are typically in, in some kind of political concession like, like they did to the FARC. In Colombia, the, the FARC became a political party. They got – Seats in the, the the national legislature, and they got to say in things, and so I, for the United States, it's kind of difficult to say. Like, I mean, this is a complex place, right? There's the regions. There's a mix. Even in red states, you have blue cities. You know, they, they say there are no, mm-hmm. there are, are no blue states. They're just blue cities, and blue cities is that's where all the job growth is in quote unquote blue states, especially tech heavy. Blue areas—that's where all the job growth is. That's where the future of the economy is. And then you have red states, which are tied to natural resources and agriculture and other types of jobs. And it's um, just—it's very difficult. It's you know, it's not like looking at a country like say, you know, Iraq, Iraq, and saying, okay, well, you could split that conceivably into two countries: Sunni areas and Shia areas. And let's forget the oil for a second. You know, we're we're spread around. We're all mixed up. And so there, there is no, uh, there's no politi- there's no pl- new political boundaries that can be drawn that would would make every side happy. As far as how long this could last, I mean, I mean, how how much time you got? So you know, let's let's think about yeah. this. Uh, a couple things. So J.P. Morgan did this uh, 600 year study on the the lifespan of world reserve currency and currencies that are the world reserve lasts for between 80 and 110 years. And so you go back to Bretton woods in 1944 and add 80 years. Well, that's 2024. We're almost there. You add a hundred years. That's 2044. So over the next 20 years it is very likely that the United States is going to be dollar dominance, will erode, road. And as that happened. So I, the, the overall point is there are trends here that are decadal trends. And so it's not just like this thing's going to be over probably in five years. Uh, We're going to have, massive problems over the next 20 years if this is true there's a small chance it's not true i I think it will be so yeah a generation is what i expect
0: well and i think a lot of people need to hear this too because one of the things so you know i'm you know 38 you know we're 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 approaching 40 and so we've got this lived experience you know over the last you know 20 plus years and seeing what happened in 9 11 and then you know these you know afghanistan and, and iraq conflicts and we realize that, yeah, these, these, the, you know, things deteriorate over time, but it does take longer than what you might think. It doesn't just collapse all at once. And so I've noticed there are a lot of younger guys that are maybe in their early to mid twenties, they're like, Hey, let's go, let's get it on, man. Like let's, and the issue, is, this is going to take a lot longer than what people may think. It's not going to be 2024 and we're going to have a failed election and then there, it's not gonna be like that. It, it's, it's going to be, as you said, protracted, drawn out with varying levels of intensity. And there, just, there may not be any singular moment where everything flips or changes. Um, so people need to be prepared for that and understand that this is not, uh, this is gonna be a state of being that we're gonna to have to endure and live through for quite some time. And if you're not comfortable with that, then you should think of other things um or find ways to kind of minimize your exposure you know to to conflict or things that are uncomfortable but it is going to go I think I heard someone say the other day maybe like 2045 is when all of this will be resolved so don't think it's going to happen anytime soon so I think you make a really good point there so um one thing I want to ask you about a little bit so you're an appreciate you're a guy that you know you've read a lot of different literature about, about war. Um, I remember reading Jane's encyclopedia growing up, you know, like that thick book that had every, every weapon, every, you know, aircraft ship from every, you know, military organization in the world, every country. And I absolutely love that. But can you share with us some of your favorite things to, uh, to read or, you know, prepare for what's coming?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Probably the number one book that I would recommend, just for the the person, I wouldn't recommend this to, to the average, you know, right wing or the average person on the right. But uh, the art of counter revolutionary war, it's by John J. McEwen, former army colonel. It's very good, and I'm writing a book right now on low intensity conflict and how to win it. And I find myself actually taking a lot of his advice. And in you know, this book was written back in the '60s, and uh, having being able to look at it in ret- retrospect through Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. A lot of the counterinsurgency doctrine is, is, comes from that kind of stuff in, in the sixties. And so, uh, but reading that book really breaks down and in, in, in includes a lot of Maoist views and Jiap and, and Ho Chi Minh and all the other guys that um, defeated the United States strategically in Vietnam and in, in Defeated, mm. the, defeated the French strategically in Indochina and de- defeated the French strategically in Algeria. And it's the strategic fight that matters. These, these conflicts are not one with violence. You cannot kill your way into victory in low intensity conflict. It's done politically. It's done through soft power. It's done informationally. And one of the big takeaways that I have that I've been trying to beat the drum about is the lack of soft power on the right. And you, you read that book and, you, you know, th- there's other books. I mean, you can read The Coin Manual. Honestly, I think Team of Teams, I don't really care for McChrystal, but Team of Teams is a really great book. It's not about coin doctrine, but it's about organization and information and teamwork and building teams that are successful. And so, I, you know, like a couple of those books really underscored for me, um, j- just briefly, I McChrystal mean, talks about his time at JSOC and he, he took over in Iraq. And the the organization, Joint Special Operations Command, that he took over was not the organization that we know today. He said that he had to rebuild JSOC. He he said it's like rebuilding an airplane in mid-flight. And I look at today's right, and we are mid-flight. we got to rebuild this airplane if we expect to land this thing somewhere. So there are a lot of things that we can do. Those are a couple books that I recommend that I think really put a lot of things into perspective in regard to where we are lacking.
0: Yeah. And and that's important because people, you know, again, this kind of thing can be a shock to the system for a lot of people. So they need to learn how to think about it and become comfortable with it and understand what's happened before. Um, So, you know, giving them that context is going to be really important. Um, Why do you think, I just want to go back to something that you said that I think you really you're you're onto it about how the right lacks any kind of soft power. I agree, but do you see that changing? Is there anything happening right now that's, you know, giving you some kind of excitement or, you know, it's wind in your sails and thinking, okay, people are starting to get it and they're going to do something about it.
1: The only thing that I see is encouraging is at least some attempt to build our own platforms. And this is by design. The The left really understands what they're doing when they de-platform people and get, get people kicked off of, of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing websites and that that's part of the soft power right hard power is violence and coercion soft power is information and changing minds through it's inform and influence it's propaganda it's you know psychological operations and so mhm Building our own platforms, I think, are a double-edged sword. Number one, I mean, there's there's Getter, there's Gab, there's I don't know five or six of these places, and it really spreads people out, spreads people thin. It ensures that there there can be no single, uh, there can be no uh, Pepsi to Coca Cola. Just because you know, uh, uh, people are spread out, so, the and that may be a good thing. the The bad thing is if we get all of us on a single platform, then it becomes where where we do have free speech, then um, we are a much larger target because it's easier to take down a single, a single platform through cyber, through lawfare, through whatever, uh, than it is you know more decentralized presence. So, I don't know what the solution is. The, the solution, you know, uh, Will Chamberlain has this really great uh, kind of, I think it was a blog post about wartime conservatism. Versus peacetime conservatism. And he says wartime conservatives have to start using government the same way that the left is using government. And so looking mm-hmm. at Section 230 reform, and uh, I, I'm typically the, I, I agree, I forget which founder said it, but the government that governs best is that which governs least. Uh, however, yes. we are no longer in that paradigm. And so I actually would like to see more government power being used to benefit us because it is our country. We live here. And so if we could start seeing that, then I would be happy as a clam.
0: Yeah. And one of the issues is, you know, the, the, the political party that's supposed to represent our interest, we feel as oftentimes, you know, they're handcuffing us or keeping us out of the conversation. You know, it's, it's, it's been my view and I don't remember exactly when I, you know, came to this realization. It was probably a little bit before Trump and it was crystallized whenever Trump ran was that the purpose of the Republican party is to quell and stomp out any kind of genuine populist movement on the right. It's what they do. I mean, it happened with Pat Buchanan back in 92. Um, They've been really, really good at, you know, it happened with Ron Paul in 2008, though I don't think he really had a chance, but there was a lot of energy and excitement there. But they really seek to destroy any kind of, again, you know, right-wing populist movement. They don't like it. And so Trump kind of, you know, he kind of outpunted the coverage. Like, I think he showed up maybe a decade earlier than maybe it would have been optimal. But then again, I mean, that's the way it worked out. And there just wasn't an apparatus, you know, within the GOP that was enthusiastic and ready to support him. So he was constantly being, uh, you know, stabbed in the back, you know, misguided, misdirected, um, deceived by the people that were around him. And it was just impossible for anybody to be able to replace, you know, all of these people that were already entrenched within any reasonable period of time. Like you just didn't really have the ability to do that. But it kind of showed us what the reality is of the situation. And that if we want to change anything within our government, it's going to be at the local level, at the regional level, and it's going to be voting in GOP primaries every time one comes up and finding the right candidate. Yeah, but it's that's a Herculean effort, though, isn't it, Mike? I mean, that that's that requires some engaged citizenry.
1: I'm to the point where, OK, if we can elect a Republican president, if that can happen, great. And if we can have a Republican Congress, great. I'm to the point where, you know, Eric Holder said a couple of years ago, former attorney general, he used to he was the head of the Democratic Redistricting Committee. And he said, demography is, is trending our way. Like if we, you know, we may not win all the elections, but if we just wait long enough, we can win all the elections. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, that's obviously what they're doing. That's what they're trying to do with this vote, these voting rights bills. Eventually maybe they'll punch them through, uh, at least in the States where that are controlled by Democrats, you know, they they'll enact or some of them already have, but they'll enact those and, and just try to build a moat, uh, to, to keep that, uh, Dominance, and then they'll just try to expand it. Which is what if they flip Georgia blue, for instance? And uh, what I'm I'm pretty much to the point where let's elect a good sheriff. Let's focus on our counties, and if we can mm-hmm. entrench our ideology in a state, that's great. Let's let's dig a moat there if we can. Ultimately, we just have to let the federal government make whatever laws they're going to make, and dare them to enforce those laws. Okay, you want to ban. X, Y, or Z. Great, come do it. And you know that may, maybe that's not the best strategy, but that's kind of where I am right now. Uh, you know, I I, I haven't abandoned trying abandoned trying to win on a national level, but you're right. We really have to focus on the local level because when you look at low intensity conflict, you have to have some form of political representation. You have to have because a political party and political representation gives you legitimacy. And if you don't have yes. legitimacy, you're going to lose if you can't build legitimacy for yourself. I I don't know what's going to happen to the federal government. I'm somewhat hopeful that in the next, at some point in the next 20 years, maybe it happens two or three years from now. I don't know. Maybe it happens two or three months from now. But at some point, I think they will lose enough legitimacy, especially once the dollar goes, once people realize, once everyday Americans realize the future of the dollar and the erosion of dollar dominance. It's going to be slow, but it's already started. Once they, yeah, once they I realize agree. that, I think, I think maybe we will start looking around and say, hey, what's actually keeping us together? We, we can't agree on politics. We can't agree on how voting should work. We can't agree on what a man or a woman is. We can't agree on religion anymore, <laughs> etc." And now, we don't, yeah. now we, we don't even have the dollar in common. And so I'm somewhat hopeful that states, once, once that happens, states will start to realize, like, we're better off alone.
0: You know, I, I totally, I think the only thing keeping us together right now is Amazon Prime with next day shipping. I mean, <laughs> it's really a consumer culture at this point that's united by the dollar. I mean, I, I can't, you know, there there is no, you know, common shared culture that really we can all get behind. It used to be even th- you know things like sports ball are divisive now, you know, in, in a COVID world. So I, I totally agree with you. And, and the thing that you're proposing reminds me of, you know, our our mutual and guy that's become a good friend of mine recently is David Rayboy. Um, you know, a fellow Miami guy that wrote a great article entitled National Divorce It May Be Expensive But It's Worth Every Penny. And it's something that other people had talked about I think before Dave, but he's somebody that I saw show up on the timeline and I'm like, "Okay, this guy's like a bodybuilder. He's, you know, there's unvarnished truth. He's not afraid to go after people and I was like, this is my kind of guy all the way. And and I read that article and, you know, his whole, you know, push was, and honestly, it probably kind of, I I think about, you know, I moved from Texas to Florida. I think some of that might have to do with, um, you know, DeSantis and also, you know, Dave's writings that might've kind of helped, you know, subconsciously steer me to wanting to explore coming out here. But, um, you know, he talks about fortifying red states and even fortifying areas within those states and that people need to abandon blue, sit, blue blue states, particularly, right now. Don't wait. Get out of there, because this is only going to get worse and worse. And so, you know, we need to go fortify these areas and just basically throw in the towel on, um, you know, the Californias and the New Yorks and the Illinois, because it's just occupied territory, and we're not going to be able to accomplish anything politically or otherwise. So it, it sounds like that's something that you've, um, the, you're you're a similar proponent of that kind of strategy.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit concerned on the strategic level. Like, you know, I live in Central Texas, and you know, can can te- does Texas have the the counterintelligence resources to fend off a of, you know a full front uh, espionage campaign against China? And I don't think any state in the country does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the federal government doesn't even have that. Uh, because there are now more spies in the United States than there were at the height of the Cold War, and so some of that stuff really does concern me. Uh, in terms of strategic level capabilities that states do not have, and really forward thinking states should should start developing those kinds of capabilities. And uh, you know, Gavin Newsom has referred to California as a nation state several times. I would like to start seeing some Republican politicians refer to their states as nation states and start thinking like a nation state instead of thinking like, oh, the federal government's going to be here forever and is always going to be the umbrella that affords me some protection. It clearly will not.
0: Yeah, that's well said. And I I remember whenever Gavin Newsom said that. He said, we are a nation state. And I also remember when we talk about national divorce, is that there's a lot of writing about it on the right. But if we go back and look at the 2020 election, Um, I think John Podesta was involved in some, you know, war gaming, you know, different scenarios that could happen in the 2020 election. If Trump won, or it was a hotly contested election, they were talking about the West coast breaking off from the country and seceding. And that was something that they, they're talking about. And I've kind of have a a, a belief that it's, if there was going to be some kind of a secession or breaking and splitting apart it very well might be uh, prompted by the left and like states on the West coast or parts of the Northeast that uh, would be pushing that because they didn't get exactly what they wanted. I mean, they've talked about it amongst party members, right?
1: Yeah. All the plans for 2020, if Trump had stayed in office or whether he was elected or not, they, some of these leftist groups that we follow, they're talking about shutting down the, the economy uh, Michelle Goldberg and Charles Blow in the New York Times were talking about getting millions of people out in the streets to to protest this democratic election, and they they're willing to take things to the brink. Uh, it it is interesting because I, I put up a poll on Twitter I don't know, a month a month or two ago or so, and it said if there were to be an active armed insurgency in the United States, would it be? Fomented by the right or by the left. And a lot of people said by the right. However, after monitoring these groups and their communications all throughout 2020, I can easily see a Republican house and senate after 2022, let's just make that a key assumption, and let's just say somehow by the grace of God we are we elect a another based Republican as president. They're going to go ape shit and oh I God. would not I do not doubt for a second that all those secessionist movements that they're talking about uh, for California and the West Coast, and you know, and I remember those states built didn't they build like some kind of economic pact where they're going to reopen strategically altogether, Oregon, Washington, and California, or something like that? I remember looking at that. I said, "Man, that's like, I mean, that's regionalism. That is what that's what uh, precedes secessionist and, and independence independence movements." So I could easily see the left starting something like that in 2025.
0: Yeah, I think what they do, Mike, is they, um, they, they poke you in the chest. You know, they put your their finger in your chest and yell and scream at you and antagonize us. And they basically want to make us eat a shit sandwich and say, you're going to like it. I mean, that, that's what they want to do. And then whenever you just say, that's it, I'm done, and you go after them like, oh my God, no, 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 please, 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 we didn't mean it. You know, like they, they continue to antagonize the right. And, you know, they've said openly, you know, people that the fear is that there's going to be some kind of a right-wing uprising and we're going to have a totalitarian dictator. And, you know, my whole thinking is every action that these folks are taking would, you know, precipitate that kind of eventuality because they're not they're not being bipartisan they're not having a real conversation they don't want to find any middle ground they don't want to compromise on anything they just want to win 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 and bulldoze everybody and if they get any kind of you know if if anything doesn't go their way um they whine and cry about it so it's going to be interesting to see what happens over <laughs> over the next few election cycles
1: one of the things, they get away with that because they control the institutions, and I didn't I didn't make this point clear enough, I don't think, of several minutes ago. Uh, the left has infiltrated and, and toppled or taken over previously conservative institutions. The Boy Scouts is a really great example. Uh, you cannot have an organization committed to churning out uh, competent, self-reliant, responsible teenagers who are going to grow up in Most likely vote Republican. Uh, Mm -hmm. you look at what they've done to the church is another example. They've taken over a lot of Christian institutions. And so their control of the institutions, eroding the soft power from conservatives. If if we are going to win in any sense of the term, and I'm not even talking about violence, although soft power does enable hard power. You cannot practice hard power for very long without without soft power. But if we are going to win, we have to either build our own institutions or take back take back the institutions that we've lost and the socialists have this really great concept called dual power where it's not enough to get political power you also have to build social power and you know through a phone tree or a text tree or an email blast and they get thousands of people lined up in a moment's notice to go protest something somewhere and they that protest gets coverage and the media says oh why are why is, why is the government, why are, uh, why are these other people being so fair? Why aren't they not just caving into the demands of these protests? That's clearly the will of the people. If we don't have institutional power like that, but for us, we are going to lose with a capital L.
0: And it's, and it's a formidable task. You know, I was um, just to kind of use an example. I think about somebody like Trevor Noah, a guy that's getting paid $30 million a year, and he's basically a talentless hack, Right. He's not he's not funny, but he's willing to go shill, you know, the popular narrative that he's given by the legacy legacy uh, media handlers. Right. And he doesn't even have to be good, but he's going to get 30 million dollars a year. Now, meanwhile, on the right. You know, if you want to (laughs) go make 30 million dollars a year, you've got to be an exceptionally good business person. So you've got to be a content creator. You've got to be an entrepreneur. You've got to be business savvy. You've got to be uncensorable. You can't let yourself get deplatformed. The degree of difficulty in building something on the right is a gazillion times harder um, because there's no there is no institutional power. So you've got to go do all of these things on your own, and you've got to be you know literally a hundred times the talent of somebody else. Where we have you know Trevor Noah and people on CNN and you know the late night uh, talk show host you know like Stephen Colbert and Kimmel and. You know, they're, they're, they're marginally talented people, but they've worked their way in the system and they get paid a king's ransom to do what they do. And nothing like that really exists on our side, does it?
1: Well, not on the major networks. I mean, there's the Blaze and the Daily, whatever Shapiro has. Daily Wire, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and, I mean, Bon Bongino's okay, I guess, but, you know, he just got kicked off of YouTube, I believe, permanently. So,
0: there you go, yeah. see? I mean, that, that, so, you know, he's he's, I think, affiliated with Rumble. Um, you know, and and he'll be fine, but it's just there's all kinds of of, of booby traps that the right, uh, you know, you've got to you've got to really be clever and be that much better than somebody else on the left who can make you know all kinds of mistakes and, and and continue to get away with it. Yeah,
1: I'm not even concerned about livelihood at this point for these people. I'm more concerned if you know are they they are on the I don't know how many subscribers Blaze has, but you know they're preaching to the choir. Uh, whereas the left on NBC Nightly News. I mean, they have, I guess they would have millions of nightly viewers, and mm-hmm. I notice NPR does this a lot. This and NPR really pisses me off because they're still taxpayer funded; they still get money from the government. But they have lies of omission. They are very, they are very good in how they. Because I listen to NPR on my way to work and on my way back every day, almost every day, and they're very good at lie, lying by omission, providing one side of the story while not the other. And this, and again, just to underscore the point. I don't care about money. I don't care how much money these people are making or not making. I care about impact. I care about the impact on their target audience. Are they informing and influencing? And this is the biggest thing. Yeah, it's, it's bad for these people who get deplatformed and YouTube takes away all their income and it's horrible for them. I'm more concerned with how many people are they able to reach on their own platform versus a platform like YouTube where there are a billion users. Inform and influence. The left is restricting our ability to inform and influence, and they are – this is what we all have to understand. They are waging low-intensity conflict against us. Low-intensity conflict. Yes, violence is an aspect. More than anything, it's political warfare, information warfare, psychological, uh, diplomatic, economic warfare. And uh, this is like China for the past 30 years waging gray zone warfare against the United States – and we're just now waking up to it in the past couple of years and if we don't understand that this is why the left is winning because they're waging war and very few of us on the right are are being like hey this is actual low intensity conflict this is gray zone warfare against the right it's <laughs> deliberate and they're reducing your power and if you don't if we can't stop them we're going to lose
0: well there's a lot of people in denial about it and, and and you're and that's why I'm so glad that, you know, we found each other and there's other accounts as well that are just keep banging, you know, banging on the drum saying, guys, like we're at war right now. Like, you know, it, it may not be how you think of a traditional war taking place, but there's an information war here. There is, an, in your words, a, a gray zone conflict that's we are living amongst and you better wake up to that fact right now. Um, you, you know, you also made a really good point about you know, these plat- these mainstream big tech platforms that are really almost the home pages of the internet for their specific usage. You know, you look at YouTube. I mean, any kind of, you know, streaming content, recorded video is gonna be on YouTube. You look at Twitter and it's, you know, blurbs and bytes, and, you know, it's basically curated content, you know, um, across, you know, various people and organizations. These are kind of the home pages that people go to. I mean, I use them every day extensively and it's it's difficult to kind of um, get attention if you're booted if you're booted off that i mean you, you're 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 in a really rough spot, but I do believe that people need to use those platforms and exhibit self censorship enough to convey the message but not get deplatformed and simultaneously you are bringing people over to your own platform and that's something that I've noticed you've done and you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute and what you're doing on your Substack and with gray zone warlord. But I think that's a really good model for people is, you know, we talked to deeper thrill the other day, who's, you know, awesome, awesome guy. And, you know, he just launched an app and he says in the future, everybody's going to need to have their own app or their own platform. And I, I think he's really onto something there. Like you need to have you know, your own content landing page that other people can reference and they understand where you stand on things. So, um, I think that's a really good point. And I I actually, I want to talk to you before we get to, you know, where people can find you and, and, and some of the great work that you've done with your Substack. I'd like to ask you in terms of, um, you know, Bitcoin and crypto and how you see that playing into the equation in terms of, um, you know, developing some kind of financial sovereignty outside the legacy system. Are you a proponent of Bitcoin and and or other cryptos?
1: I am. I'm a strong proponent of crypto. Uh, I don't know if you, anyone follows Balaji. I can't pronounce his last name. Sorry, Balaji. Uh, you know, he's talking about the network network states and the future of the, na- you know, na- the nation state as a concept I think is going away. A, a really great book on this case is The Sovereign Individual. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think, you know, they say Bitcoin solves this, like Bitcoin solves everything. I think sound money does solve a lot. And I really would like to see, uh, I would like to see us all move to, to crypto. The fed's going to, the fed's going to have to crush crypto as much as possible. They can't lose monopoly on, on the national currency where the dollar really is doomed. I look at, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not really a, a shill, but I'll just mention, you know, Cardano or Ethereum or, you know, some of these other uh, proof of work, or excuse me, a proof of stake tokens, and I think there will probably come a day when boomers and retirees say, "Okay, I'm gonna, am I gonna buy a? I, maybe if, eventually, if we have some kind of price stability. I think we're still in price discovery right now. People are still trying to figure out is Ethereum worth five hundred dollars mm-hmm. or five thousand dollars." Right. (laughs) But you know, with, with these stake yields and decentralized finance, this is very, I mean, this is a very important shift that's happening. And so, you know, I, I love every five days, I get another staking reward from Cardano and I'm not even really that concerned with where the price is going to be two or three or two months or two or three years from now, like in 10 years, hopefully I'll retire on Cardano. Um, Or at least on the staking rewards, stake rewards that I get. But uh, I, I do. It's re- going to revolutionize everything. Unfortunately, we're going to have to kill the Fed first.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think they're doing a pretty good job of that themselves. At least it seems like they're trying to. Um, they're really stuck in between a rock and a hard place in terms of, um, you know, you raise you raise interest rates, and uh, you know, consumer prices go down, but it would really def- it would really hurt the housing market and, um, you know, and, and risk assets dramatically, and so. You know, I, I think that there, you know, the stock market is very important to boomers and the older generation. Uh, that's where a lot of their retirement is, is 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 coming from. And so, you know, having any kind of a significant rise, I just I, I don't see how that's going to play out. But you know, I, I'm with you in principle in terms of I think that's going to happen over the next ten or fifteen years. Stan, Stanley Drunken Miller uh, recently said in an interview that he thinks the dollar will cease to be the global reserve currency within 15 years at the current pace, the current trajectory, um, you know, 15 years. So it seems like a long time, but uh, you know, it could be 10 years, but it seems like he's accepting the fact that it's going to happen and the rest of the world is going to move on from the dollar. So uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was what we can do to prepare. You know, we've talked about, you know, getting you know studying and and reading literature and following people that's going to get you abreast as to what's really going on we've talked a little bit about uh bitcoin and various cryptocurrencies and and you know putting our money there and um one of the things so what can what can like a young guy out there do right now that like he's like okay i'm you know he's he's 25 years old and he's he sees where things are headed he's got his whole life ahead of him but he realizes that this isn't going to be anything like what his parents or grandparents went through and he needs to start preparing. Are there some general, you know, words of advice or instructions that you would give somebody like that?
1: Yeah. Number one, in terms of your career, I agree with Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. You've got to start a personal brand and uh, monetize it if you can, because, you know, I just look at YouTube and other platforms that are, or that you can monetize, Substack's another one. You uh, st- start building an o- your personal audience. Because if you do lose your job during a recession, you you know may not pay the bills, or maybe you can build it into something that you at least won't starve, and just make YouTube videos, or write Substack, write down your thoughts. Because a lot of people have, have very insightful commentary, and they just, they need to share it. So that's number one. Uh, number two, if you don't have insightful commentary, you need to read. You need to read a lot of books. Because The chances that your, I hate when they say this, your lived experience, your lived experience is not wide enough. And it's also not deep enough for anybody to give a shit, pardon my language. So the more Mm -hmm. books you read, the wider and deeper your frame of reference can be, and the more insightful you can become. So that's number two is just read a lot, specifically history and, and futurist books. The third thing I would yeah. say is you have to build a local community. If you're into preparedness, maybe that's a mutual assistance group. If you're into whatever, I don't know, you, you just need to build a community. You need to build a team of, of like-minded individuals who can say, if there ever is a some catastrophic event or some natural emergency, we're going to come together and we're going to figure out how to make it this work. Uh, number four, and by the way, these are, these are aren't in chronological order. Like you should probably probably be doing all four at the same time. Get a skill. You must have a the ability to produce something. You must have mm-hmm. a valuable skill. And number, I would say number five. It, Ray Dalio said this best know, a month or two ago. He said, "In the future, your wealth is going to be measured in your ability to produce." The same with companies. I was talking to my dad the other day. We we're talking about where to put your money for the next ten years. He said. You got to invest in companies that produce something. And you look at the hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany, almost everybody got wiped out. You know who became millionaires during the Weimar hyperinflation? The guys who owned the ability to produce raw materials. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't have an iron ore mine, your SOL, however, you have to be able to produce something. That's why I like, that's why I really like Cardano and these other proof of stake tokens that you know, that have staking rewards because yeah, the price of Cardano or Ethereum, whatever may crater in the next five years, eventually its utility is going to be so massive that you get billions of people or maybe a billion people on those platforms. And you're not going to have to worry about retirement. And maybe I'll be working until I die. Cause who knows? Uh, but that's kind of my working theory right now. <laughs> so I think those well, things, if, you look- if you can do those five things, you're going to make it. If you can't do those five things, you're not going to make it.
0: That's really sound advice. And um, I mean, we may even have to do a clip of this and put it up there because I think that's outstanding for young guys. And that's, and that's really what this show is for, is we want to you know, bring great people um, you know, from this base sphere and help young men. And you know, one of the things we've done here, we talk about communities, which I think is one of the most important ingredients of this is people, uh, you know, we're in South Florida. Uh, We've got about 10 to 15 guys. I think we'll be at 20 pretty soon. That, um, you know, these are people that I've met on Twitter that know each other. And we got together back in early November and had a really good time, you know, getting together for dinner and drinks, you know, hitting the beach and just developing those friendships and those male bonds, I think is super, super important. And we'll meet again, you know, on February 12th and and 13th. And that's what the base brotherhood is about. And, and we wanna encourage people to do this all over the country and we'll do whatever we can do to assist you and connecting you to other people, giving you some kind of a structure, you know, developing an email list. That's something that we wanna be an active participant in. And, um, you know, you're in the Austin area and I'm, how long have you been in Austin? And do you have anything similar like, like this that you know, we're talking about right now, like a group of base guys that you meet with regularly?
1: Yeah, I live outside of Austin. I used to live near downtown, like midtown area. And uh, I just couldn't handle it anymore. So my wife and I moved in early 2000. It's funny because I did a YouTube video at the end of 2019. I'm like, man, I just do not feel good about 2020. Austin's is not the place to be. And so we moved. And yeah, we do. We have a super solid crew. And man, I got to tell you, uh, get fit, learn how to run and gun, get training, go out. I'm just... yes. Uh, just in terms of your survivability, number one, your health is of the utmost importance. Number two, uh, learning, owning the, owning the means of self-defense is not enough. You've got to go become tact- or technically and tactically proficient in that mean of self-defense. And you need to start a crew. You need to build support. So communications, medical, intelligence, mobility. I don't know. I'm sure I forgot one or two. Uh, and man, I, you have to start. I really do believe this. I, you have to start thinking of yourself, of you and your crew, as a small unit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to start thinking in terms of day-to-day self-defense and survival. It may not get that bad, but the, the the likelihood is not zero. And looking at how things line up, and looking at the the future of the dollar, the first, the future of these social movements, and their ability to generate chaos looking at uh, systems disruption energy and the supply chain they're gonna if we get into a war with China everything stops excuse me and so sorry and so um, man I you, you really just got a to band together and uh, I, I used to not be that that Milton or, or Marshall but I am now like i uh, you know the the pilot a pilot friend of mine said, they spend 99% of their time training for the 1% of things that can go wrong. And we really need to start preparing for the 1% of things that can go wrong. Cause this is eventually going to end probably within our lifetimes. This is going to end. What we have is going to end.
0: It looks more likely every day. Um, and, and I think that's a key thing is, is start building that network right now and, uh, you know, reach out to people and, you know, Twitter is a great resource. I mean, I think about over the last year or so, Mike, I mean, a lot, you know, since COVID really, a lot of those historical friendships and even some family members, those relationships have, you know, they've, they've, they've waned, some have even withered and died. And I have found people on Twitter that I'm more ideologically aligned with. And what's so cool is a lot of people, you know, you can send them a DM, you know, you you know, you respond to a tweet like, Hey, I want to talk to you. And people are incredibly responsive and, you know, people with much larger accounts than, than than ours, you know, that are well in the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that will actually respond to you and you can pick their brain, develop a friendship. And, you know, the key is to meet in person. I mean, I you, you know, meeting in person is is really what it all comes down to. Um, you know, use Twitter, use other platforms to connect with people and, and build those relationships. But ultimately, meeting in person is what's really going to, you know, be important when the rubber meets the road.
1: Yeah, can I say use churches to meet with people? I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you, but you can't always. You can be a lot more sure of someone of uh, who someone is. Who you can be a lot sure more sure of someone. Uh, it, it, what am I trying to say? That someone is who they say they are at church than you can on on Twitter or some other social media platform. Yes, they're also much more likely. Yes, if you're at a base church. Much more likely to be ideologically simpatico. And that's the local networking. I always say counter organize and win because they're organizing against us. And if you are not organizing a local network to respond to their local political agitation, you are going to lose. You're not going to make it. Counter organize and win at the local level.
0: That's great advice. You know, we recently found a good church here in Miami. And it's got a lot of young people and some base guys. And, dude, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, see something's either a good fit or it's not. But when you find that fit, those are the guys that are going to come through for you. Um, I think that's very, very well said. So, um, you know, I, I read a little bit. I went to your website, Gray Zone Warlord, and I looked at, you know, you've done about a dozen articles covering, you know, in greater detail some of the things we discussed today. And there's other topics as well. Um, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about this?
1: Yeah, I kind of abused my Substack because I don't write there enough. Uh, but uh, there's a couple of places, forwardobserver.com. That's the company I run. We produce intelligence on what's going on every Tuesday. I do a special on uh, what, what's new in, in Civil War II. Every Thursday, I do an economic early warning brief. And then over on YouTube, I've got a gray zone. My training company is called Gray Zone Activity. It's a YouTube channel. I'm really trying to do more videos there and I get tactical. I get really in the weeds on some of this stuff um, and the importance of what we talked about. So I, I would say fordobserver.com, check us out and then uh gray zone activity over on YouTube.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mike, I really do appreciate you joining us this afternoon. I I've, I've certainly learned something and um, we really do appreciate your time. Any last words you want to leave our audience with?
1: No, thanks for thanks for doing this. I think this is going to be a an important podcast for people to listen into, because of the the people that you're talking to and the things you're talking about. And we need to get away from. I I just look at Twitter and just how much an inordinate amount of time people spend on there and griping about stuff. And you got to get active. You got to get active locally. And so, if that's a message you you can keep pushing, then we can. Then you're pushing in the right direction, and I'm I'm proud to, to get behind you. Recognize we're, we're on the same line pushing towards the same direction.
0: We certainly are. We serve. Well, Mike Shelby, thank you so much, man. We really do appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime.